This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We all have habits that we seem to adhere to, no matter if they are good or bad. But wouldn't it be an amazing thing to be able to make good behaviors and behavior change something that would hold in play for long periods of time. University of Pennsylvania psychology professor Angela Duckworth has partnered up with Wharton Associate Professor of Operations and Information and Decisions Catherine Milkman to start Behavior Change for Good initiative, which looks to do exactly that, study behavior change and see how potentially it can become permanent. And Angela and Katie joining us here in the studio to discuss this. Great to have you both here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. So in, in looking at the backstory of this, from what I read, the idea for this, the genesis of it, started from the walks that the two of you would take from your homes over here to the University of Pennsylvania. Katie lives uh, near Rittenhouse, and so do I. So I would go, uh, leaving my house a few minutes early, pick her up, and then we would walk to work together and more or less talk about behavior change the the whole way. Um, It's something that we individually studied as scientists, and we felt that since our approaches were similar but different in some important ways that what we could do together would be better and bigger than anything we could do apart. So where are those subtle differences between where the two of you look at behavior change? My background is in behavioral economics, and so I have a slightly different lens that I apply to the problem than a psychologist would. Um, think more about incentives, for instance, and uh, and and more about some of the things that an economic model would predict matter to behavior. Um, I also have focused more on health behavior change, whereas Angela is focused more on education. And so those different contexts actually have taught us different lessons, but they're probably generalizable. Angela? I think when Katie and I disagree about things, it is because we have very different trainings and the things that jump out to us as being opportunities or problems are are just different. As a psychologist, I'm always thinking, how are people approaching this situation? What are the beliefs that existed in their heads before they they got here? What are their feelings? Um, And I think that it's not incompatible with Katie's approach, but it's just what jumps out to me first may not be what jumps out to her first and, and vice versa. So health, education are two of the main areas that you're looking at with this project. Savings, I guess, is one of the other ones. Uh, Why specifically those three areas? I mean, obviously, they encompass so much of some of the decisions that we make these days. We're really interested in behavior across the lifespan and across all the domains of life. So it's not even that we're just interested in health education and savings. There are fundamentally the same challenges across any any domain of life that you can think of. You know, when you have to study or when you have to eat right or go to the gym or take your medications or save responsibly versus indulge in impulse purchases or many other things, you know, like call your mother-in-law back. I mean, there's so many. Uh, dimensions of human behavior where doing the right thing, the thing that's good for you and good for other people, isn't the easiest thing and isn't always the funnest thing to do in the moment. I think that's what all of these problems have in common. But it is interesting, Katie, the fact that when you talk about all these different elements, that seemingly there is a financial or economic component to them one way or the other, either the in savings, the potential growth that somebody may have with their 401k or something like that, or with health, the the economic impact on that person with their health coverage or 
on the health system in general. So there are so many different economic components with all of these different angles. Yeah, absolutely. No, all the things we're studying have meaningful economic consequences and, and as a result, meaningful welfare consequences. And that's one of the reasons we chose these topics is we really want to have impact that's important. Uh, and we see these as areas of people's lives where if we can change educational outcomes, if we can change savings outcomes, if we can change health outcomes, um, we can really make people much better off. And, and you're talking about also to a degree really changing the potential of the of the financial component of a lot of the businesses and entities that would be in these sectors as well. Because, I mean, everybody talks today about the cost of health care being so high. Well, if you change some of these these ideas and, and these uh, lifestyle uh, options, you could be talking about a much different economic outcome for a lot of these pieces. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And, and a number we like to quote often is that about 40% of premature deaths are the result of behaviors that could be changed. So if we could just get everyone to exercise regularly, if we could get everyone to um, quit smoking, drink responsibly, eat a healthy diet, get recommended cancer screenings, we'd be able to wipe all sorts of deaths off the map and um, reduce medical costs dramatically. And off of that is, is the actual, the large number which you have uh, in your reporting, 1.16 million deaths thereabouts annually be, that are considered to be premature, people dying before they actually probably should. That's right. And because of these behaviors that they could change. So there are other premature deaths due to, you know, unfortunate genetics or unfortunate environmental outcomes or accidents that really can't be prevented. But this is a set of deaths that could be wiped off the map if we simply change the way people behave. But a lot of people, Andrew, would say that, that the challenge is getting people, one, to understand some of these decisions, but two, as you were trying to do, to actually make the change and make it long term. And a lot of people would say that's a challenge that, that would be very hard to do. It is in some ways the holy grail. Um, I, I don't want to trivialize the problem. I think Katie and I wouldn't be working on it with such enthusiasm if we thought it would be solved in a day or a week or, or even a year. It's it's so obvious. I mean, just you know, think about our own lives. You know, walk down the side. It's obvious that many of us struggle to do what we know is in our best interest, uh, and yet you know, we're we're confronted with our own failures, right? I mean, how many of us made New Year's resolutions yeah. not that long ago yeah. that you know seemed like uh, you know that they didn't work out? So so why is it that people don't do what's in their best interest? I don't think it's actually primarily a knowledge gap. I don't think there are many. Americans, for example, who haven't heard somewhere that they should be eating more fruits and vegetables. I don't think there are many Americans who, who think like, oh, I don't know, education could be a good idea or maybe right. not. It's really actually executing every day these small decisions that add up cumulatively. One thing I'll just leave you with this one idea. Obviously, there's there are many, but but um, when you make a small decision, you know, to eat this, not that, or to go to the gym or not, or to study tonight, or binge watch Netflix, those small decisions can seem like they have no consequence, right. but it's the accumulation of those tiny, tiny moments that actually make your life go in one direction or another. But do people recognize that accumulation that you talk about? Because one thing may happen on a Monday and the other thing may not happen again till Friday or Saturday and people won't necessarily link the two together. I think it's the lack of connection that is that is really at the heart of the problem. If I don't take my heart medication today, will anything happen to me today? Right. Probably not. If I don't go to the gym today, will anything bad happen to me 
today? Right. Probably not. Same thing for, you know, procrastinating on my final exam, et cetera. Now, of course, things do eventually happen. The final exam eventually comes. Your, yeah. you know, your heart eventually, you know, will or won't, you know, do what you need it to do. Uh, but I think that gap between my daily decisions and my ultimate outcomes is very much part of the psychological problem. We are talking about behavior change with uh, Katie Milkman of the Wharton School and uh, from the University of Pennsylvania, Angela Duckworth. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. So in order to be able to tackle something like this, and I noticed it on the website, which uh, you guys have put together for this, this is very much interdisciplinary. I mean, you have to have input from so many different pieces, so many different areas to tackle. I mean, even just one aspect, let's just say education, you have to have a variety of different minds coming together on this. Yeah, and I think that's the the power of, of what Katie and I are trying to build. It's not the power of one mind. It's not even the power of two minds, Katie plus Angela. It's really the power of a network of world-class scientists from very different backgrounds. Some of them are neuroscientists, some economists, some psychologists, and, and more. And we don't know which ideas are going to actually be more effective than others. We're going to let the data tell us. We are going to run series, and I mean that in plural, of experiments to see which seemingly good ideas are really good and which seemingly good ideas aren't so good. Katie? Yeah, so one of the things that spurred us to sit down with you today is that we're launching this massive uh if you will, competition and program. Right. Um, what it is, is it's a program to help gym members increase how frequently they exercise. So the goal is to increase daily physical activity. And the approach we've taken is sort of like a tournament. So the program is open to all members of 24-Hour Fitness, one of the largest gym chains in the country with 4 million members. And we're hopefully going to recruit hundreds of thousands of people to join. And then their experiences will be different. The flip of a coin will determine which of 57 different paths they take, each designed by different team scientists with hmm. their best insights about how to change behavior for good. And we'll, we'll be running a tournament to see which of those ideas truly yields the biggest change change in behavior, not just during the course of the program, which is 28 days, but uh, during the year following it in gym attendance. Now, are, are these current gym members or people that would potentially be signing up as new members of a gym? Either is fine. So okay. we would love as many people as possible. The only requirement for joining our study is that people have a membership at 24-hour fitness before they sign up, but they can go ahead and get it online right before they come to our program. And the reason we care about that is that uh, we need a way to actually track and measure the effectiveness sure. of the program. And so um, we've built a partnership with 24-Hour Fitness that gives us a data pipeline. Anyone who opts into our program and consents is part of a research study. And that means their data is flowing to us and we can actually document who's going to the gym most and figure out what works best. Because seemingly, even the difference between somebody that is already a gym member and somebody that isn't but would join to be part of this, that person that's been the gym member may have some characteristics of having that lifestyle change or, or that's already kind of ingrained in them where the person that's not may not have that. Once we get the data, we can look and answer those questions. You know, did this activity, did this program work better for people who were new members or or veteran members or really new members, like they really did just sign up right before, um, you know, right before they registered for the program? So, so those are all questions that the data will illuminate after, of course, we've collected it. And one of the neatest things about what we're doing, I think, is the scale. Uh, often yeah. when you run a study, 
it's small. And yeah. so trying to slice the data and say, well, how did new members differ from old members? How did women differ from men? How did 30-somethings differ from 50-somethings? You're starting to slice the data really thinly when you do a, a typical size experiment. But the, the massive scale of what we're trying to do here will allow us to slice the data in those different directions and still have lots of people left to give us robust answers. So one of the things that's most exciting to me about this is going to be all of those kinds of, we call them heterogeneity analyses in um, nerdy academic speak, or just you know looking at different subgroups in normal normal language. Which is interesting because when you're talking about about all whether it be people that are millennials or Gen X or baby boomers, whatever it is, they bring obviously different kind of components to the table. But you're talking about trying to change mindset, change philosophy, not only for now, but for the next 20, 40, 50 years. And that obviously takes us well past millennial, well past Gen Z into a generation that hasn't even hit the planet at this point. At one point, Katie and I thought about making this the healthy habits study because, you know, <laughs> it could have been named that equally uh, because we are talking about habits. We, we were talking about habits for life. And we really do feel like if people can develop healthy ways of eating, exercising, working, studying, sleeping, um, taking care of their finances, then, in fact, you're, you're exactly right. This is what's going to take care of you however many decades you live. And part of that is also, I guess to a degree, uh, the family component of it, uh, of mindset and choices being passed down from generation to generation, father, mother to child as well, that could be an impact also. Now, now you're really getting ambitious. You, well, you know, I mean, you know. I mean, when you, but, but when you think about the potential scope of what you're talking about, this is this has the potential to really affect some significant change moving forward. Well, we do know it is true that children uh, learn a lot from their parents. Their parents are their first and um, uh, probably the most influential role models. Right. So, you know, if any of you out there listening need even more incentive to develop healthy habits, I mean, you do have a responsibility, I think, to to uh, model um, healthy habits. Uh, for your kids. We don't have access to family uh, information yeah. in this study, but but absolutely, I think that uh, you know when things are working well in a family and um, kids are seeing healthy behaviors, that can only be good. The idea of actually having behavioral change obviously starts with the person himself or herself. But as we were saying, th there are so many different kind of components that are around that person that could potentially be positive or negative effects. And I was thinking about this earlier today is the fact when you when you think about a person in a company that you know they have a healthy lifestyle program that they want their employees to be healthy. Well, that company is thinking about the health of their employees. But then again, you have so many other companies like the fast food industry that would want to maybe not necessarily link that together. So you have this this back and forth going on right now which is a, which is a unique challenge. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a reason that this hasn't been solved before. In fact, there are many reasons that this hasn't been solved before and remains a really interesting area for inquiry. And one of them is all of these competing forces and all these competing channels for your attention. It's something we're struggling with as we figure out what's the best way to build solutions. Um, I think this empirical approach that we're taking, which is to do randomized controlled trials at massive scale, has huge potential because um, it'll cut a lot of the noise out of the way. We'll be able to um, quickly iterate and, and build a better prototype. And uh, a lot of the solutions that are out there are not being tested in that rigorous way. So that may be one of the reasons we don't have something uh, yet. But 
but all this competing noise is tough. What we're doing in this approach is trying to meet people where they are. So we're not expecting mm-hmm. people to come and spend a lot of time hanging out with us. Everything's right. digital. Um, we're sending text messages and emails as part of our program. We don't. Everything's on a website where you can register, but we don't expect people, frankly, to come back a lot because right. they're busy and and they have Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram also, competing and, for their attention. And you're also building it in. It seems like into the normal routine of their lives as well. Correct. That's right. That's exactly the point. We're trying to to meet people where they are and um, and speak to them on technology that they're already used to using. We're talking with uh, Angela Duckworth of the University of Pennsylvania and uh, Catherine Milkman of the Wharton School. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This may be a tough question to ask, because, but, but what are your expectations uh, of doing this? Because there, there are so many different levels that you could potentially take this. Well, maybe I'll begin with what I don't expect, and okay. that is that I don't expect in 2018 to solve the the problem of enduring behavior change. It's right. too hard. I don't expect it to happen in 2019, but I do expect that immediately we'll start learning. I, th- I think there's a long, long road ahead to unraveling the problem of of human behavior change. Why do some people adopt good habits? And we know these people, right? You know, they do pick up a habit and they stick with it forever. But then so many of us are failing right next to them. So I think it's a really hard problem. But I know that with 100% confidence that if we if we stick with it and if we collect data and we let the data tell us uh, what the data have to tell us, then then there's 100% guarantee that we'll make progress. Katie? I absolutely agree with everything Angela just said. So my expectation is that we're going to make progress. We're going to learn really interesting things, and it's going to take a long, long time before we get a solution that we can say, you know, it's not going to be in our lifetimes that we can say, oh, we're done. Yeah, <laughs> I don't see that happening. But does the benefit, part of the benefit that you get in doing a partnership with 24-Hour Fitness is the fact that you have locations in various parts of the United States and obviously people that live here in Philadelphia may be slightly different in mindset and, and decision of people in West Virginia or Oklahoma. And to be able to kind of get a feeling for, to a degree, geographically, what some of these changes are and how they're impacting people. Sure. I mean, the beauty of this collaboration is uh, many fold, but one of the huge beauties is um, – how vast their network of gyms is, 430 across the country, 4 million members, and that we're going to have the opportunity to change so many lives, collect so much data on what works in such diverse populations. That's how you accelerate learning. And uh, and I think you know that's what we're so excited about, what sets this apart from any social science project I've ever been involved in before. Angela? I think this is actually, by really any estimate, the most ambitious social science project that's ever been launched. For example, we know we've been talking a lot about the gym study, but in January, we collected data from uh, about 18,000 high school students who are involved in a similar um, tournament, if you will, where different social scientists put their heads together and tried to come up with different activities that they thought would maximally motivate students to reach their potential academically. In this case, change their third marking period grades. We we did this in January <laughs> 2018. <laughs> and, you know, to collect that much data from that many kids and have this number of world-class scientists waking up on a Saturday, you know, morning and thinking like, you know, what would a high school junior, you know, say to themselves that would really motivate themselves at this time of the academic year? 
that to me is is uh, you know really the promise, right? Not that that particular experiment will solve the problem, but if you do that again and again, and you get more and more of the world's great scientists working on the world's most urgent problems, you know that to me is the royal road to progress. You mentioned education for a second, and, and I want to touch on that for a minute because. Uh, obviously, it's, it's, it's an amazing time, I think, in education from a variety of different levels. When you talk about decisions and, and how they can impact people through education, you're looking at high school, college, uh, and to a degree, even the jobs that they could potentially get after college being all kind of in that line is an impact, correct? I think, you know, as someone who came to science from a, a classroom teacher position, which is, you know, how I was trying to make a difference, you know, I think education is one of the most important, highly leveraged things anybody could work on or care about. I mean, these are young people. These are young people who are just figuring out who they are. They are learning the skills that will hopefully serve them for the rest of their lives. So absolutely, I, I think of um, working on young people as, you know, working on people at the very beginning. Um, and uh, of course, you know, health is also important. Of course, financial savings are also important. Then these are all related. But um, but absolutely, we want to get these kids on the right path. Katie, what about the education piece from, from your perspective on the economic side is so attractive in, in tackling this these types of ideas? Well, certainly on the economic side, one of the things that we know uh, about life outcomes is there's pretty much no such thing as a pill you can give someone that will improve their income, but education is the closest thing we've got. Yeah. So, um, and it's not just income, it improves health outcomes, it improves just about everything. So if you think about making social impact, there's nothing better than trying to figure out how we can get more kids to do better in school. And one thing that you know you might find depressing, but it's also just you know important to know, is that when you, for example, beep kids in the middle of what they're doing, you say, what are you doing right now? How are you feeling? What you learn is that when kids are doing academic work, they're either in school or at home studying and doing homework. Right. They say two things. They say, what I'm doing right now is the most important thing I do during the entire week. Right. Uh, it's more important than you know being on the internet. It's more important than texting. But then when they are asked the question, like, how do you feel? Um, they say that, you know, frankly, it's not the most fun thing that it could be doing. It's, it's you know, close to the bottom of, you know, sort of fun and enjoyment. I'm not saying that school ought to be torturous, right. but the fact that what is good for you in the long run isn't as fun as Snapchat, isn't as fun as Instagram, isn't as fun as like watching another video on YouTube means that it's a real behavior change challenge. And I think young people need our support in figuring out how do I do things that are good for me in the long run when, frankly, there are a dozen other things yeah. I could do with, at a click of one button that would be easier and more enjoyable. And that was going to be my point is the fact that we're in such this digital nature right now where our education and our enjoyment are linked to digital right now. So it, it's almost like coming to a fork in the road. Do I go left or right at this point? Yeah. And I, I, you know, Katie and I have limits on what we can do through our platform. But I will also say as a mother and as a former teacher, the fact that kids more and more are being asked to do their academic work on computers, yeah. um, it's kind of like asking someone to like only eat salad, but to do it in the middle of a bakery. Because basically these kids are, you know, really one tab away from all the things that they could do. They're just way easier and more fun, but they're supposed to stay on the tab that is their math homework, or they're supposed to stay on the tab that is, you know, writing an essay for English class. And that's really, you know, not the smartest way to design schoolwork. Which I guess also goes to the potential of what our educators and our education system is doing 
to prepare these students for those next years, whether it be the tools that they are giving them to be able to use it or the curriculums that they're doing. And that, again, goes kind of back to the economics of it in terms of some school systems, which are, you know, here in Philadelphia, Chicago, some of the other cities, which are, are financially strapped right now. I think what the, the 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 product of this collaboration, this platform, this network of scientists uh, is going to generate are insights, and and those insights we hope will go back to to districts, to families, to teachers. You know, if we figure out, oh, you know, this is something that can motivate a kid to develop a healthy habit. Yeah. It's not just the digital platform itself, but the insight and you know, creative school administrators, teachers, parents everywhere could say like, well, if that's the insight, I know a way that I can creatively make that happen. Uh, and, and, you know, insights are zero cost to, to really, yeah. you know, share. And I think that's really exciting. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. One of the things that's cool about what we're doing is we are focusing on low cost interventions that are easy to scale. And so even school systems that are really struggling, um, you know, even people who can't afford a gym membership, frankly, should be able to benefit from the science that we produce because the insights are practically free. So for people that would like to potentially be involved in the program you're doing with 24 Hour Fitness, how can they find out more? They can visit... 24go.co slash step up and they can enroll there um, and they can also visit our website anytime bcfg.upenn.edu and that website has a lot of the background on what you guys are doing right now with this entire look at behavior change great seeing you both thanks for coming in Thank, Thank you, you both. so Thanks much. Thanks for having this us. Thank you. Angela Duckworth uh, from the University of Pennsylvania. Catherine Milkman here from the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.